0: Faith grew exponentially you know at times in my life when i 've kind of gone through maybe a, a difficult time, uh, maybe it was a significant setback, maybe it was some adversity or trial that comes, oftentimes this is the way that things happen whenever we have these moments where we kind of come out the other side, and God has done a great work of refining us and In growing us. This morning, we'll see that Jacob's turning point comes in chapter 35, just off of the heels of something terrible that has happened in chapter 34. You know, some texts in the Bible are difficult to read because they're deeply convicting, and some texts of the Bible are difficult to read because they seem complex, they cause us to dig deeper to study harder. <clears throat> and yet other passages of the Bible are difficult to read because they, they seem to be difficult in regard to the subject matter. It's hard to stomach what we read. The subject matter is, is heinous and bothersome. Chapter 34 is just that kind of story. It's a heinous and bothersome story. You know, if we were using the rating system of of uh, modern-day movies, chapter 34 certainly would be R-rated and explicit. And it's, it's for that reason, considering the wide range of our Sunday morning gatherings, that I'm going to narrate chapter 34 and not read through chapter 34. And then at the end, I want to give a few summary statements and encourage you to go back and read the account later, maybe this afternoon, maybe at some point during the week, and then reflect back over some of these summary statements that that I'll share, and then we'll continue through chapter 35, and chapter 35 verses 1 through 15 will be the main portion of our text this morning. So we've we've noted in the past few sermons, since the beginning of the Abraham narrative, that over and over again, God's covenant promises with his people keeps getting put in jeopardy. It's put in jeopardy by their sinful actions, by their unwise choices, and yet again and again, We see this threat happen. And here, again, we see a threat to God's covenant people. And the threat is through the disobedience of Jacob. He is tempted to intermarry with the Canaanites, or the Shechemites of the land. And this would bring a threat on God's covenant people. So this morning, I want us to see, as God's covenant people, Christians advance God's kingdom... When we rightly image God to the world, Christians advance God's kingdom. When we rightly image God to the world, this was to be Jacob's vocation. This is what Jacob was to do, was to give an image of God, a portrayal of God to the world that he was in. It was part of the blessing that he would be a blessing to the nations, right? This was part of God's covenant promise that through him the nations would be blessed. And yet, what we see happen in chapter 34, ironically, is that the nations are anything but blessed because the Shechemites are slaughtered by Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi. We'll get to that in a moment. So we know from the end of chapter 33, verses 18 through 20, that Jacob has led his family unwisely to settle in a land where he shouldn't be, the land of Shechem. And the land of Shechem was only about a day's journey from Bethel, but Bethel is the place that he should have been. We noted last week that Jacob isn't where he should be. And in fact, in Genesis 28, he had made a vow to the Lord when he was leaving the land headed to Padan Aram. And he vowed that when he returned, he would make straightway for Bethel. And it was there at Bethel that he first encountered God and the angels of God ascending and descending on the stairway between heaven and earth. And upon his return, he vowed that he would go there, he would make an altar, he would worship God alone, and he would give a tenth of all that he had to the Lord God. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 34, Jacob and Leah's daughter, Dinah, has gone out to visit the other women of the land. Now, there's something peculiar and strange about the fact that this is mentioned, that Dinah is going out to visit the other women of the land, but somehow she comes across a path of the prince of the land named Shechem, and the text describes a tragic scene about Dinah. Dinah is violated, defiled, and it says a disgraceful thing in Israel has been done to her. And then we find out later in the account that she's actually still being held by Shechem. In other words, she's been abducted. Shechem tells his father, Hamor, he wants to marry Dinah, and then he demands that his father go and make the arrangements with Jacob the people of Israel. But when Jacob hears about what has happened to Dinah, he just remains silent. He doesn't say anything, not quite the reaction that we think a father should have regarding his daughter when he finds out such terrible news. On the other hand, when her brothers, Simeon and Levi, come in from pasturing the flocks, and learn what has happened to their sister Dinah. They're indignant, they're angry. The reaction that Jacob should have had, but instead the brothers have it. And then next, Hamor and Shechem approach Jacob and they want to negotiate a settlement, a bridal price for Dinah. Simon and Levi were there for the negotiations as brothers would be in the ancient Near Eastern culture. Shechem offers to pay an exorbitant bridal price, whatever is named for Dinah, he will pay it. So Simeon and Levi, being outraged, they scheme, and they reply, the only way forward is for all the men of the city to become circumcised like the Israelites. Otherwise, it can't happen. So ultimately, Shechem and Hamor approach the men of the city. They go back to their men, approach the men of the city, and they craftily get them to agree. Then on the third day, when the men of the city are writhing in pain from the procedure, Simeon and Levi march into the city, and they slaughter all the men. They kill them. They rescue their daughter, their sister, Dinah, from Shechem's captivity, and then they plunder the wealth of the city, the flocks, the herds, including the wives and the children. And then in the final scene of chapter 34, it shows that Jacob is incensed with his sons for making him odious to the people of the land because he fears retaliation from the surrounding Canaanites and the people of the land. But it's Simeon and Levi who get the last word in chapter 34. There are a couple of implications that we need to draw from this portion of the Jacob story. And I want us to begin with Jacob first. Jacob's loveless fathering of Leah's children is evident throughout his time that he's that we've seen in the interaction, right? But it's even evident in his response to Dinah's situation. In fact, Simeon and Levi have to step up to defend their sister's honor in the face of Jacob's silence and passivity. And this is one of the takeaways for us, that a passive father is a disastrous recipe for his family. A passive father is a disastrous recipe for his family. You know, father's the temptation to be passive in leading your family Is strong. It's strong today, but we should learn from Jacob that passivity in leading our families is actually a cowardice thing. And there, there are many applications here. One is the importance of guarding our children from themselves and the unwise privileges that our culture affords children at too young of an age. Just one example is the use of phones and access to the internet and the epidemic of porn. There's an implicit challenge, an implicit challenge that Christians can learn from this story. And that is the need to lead one's family, not just fathers, but fathers and mothers. The need to lead one's family to pursue God, to pursue God's ways by demonstrating a love for Christ through patterning our lives according to God's word. another direct application would be to have a right response of moral indignation in the face of evil when it's perpetrated against the family member or even perpetrated by a family member. Simeon and Levi's deceit and violence, it shows that they've picked up on Jacob's deceitful tactics. They've seen Jacob's deceit at work in their home, and they've picked up on it. And because of his lack of moral indignation, Simeon and Levi have now taken matters into their own hands and they've gone after their sister's defiler. So while their retribution for Dinah's dishonor doesn't quite match the crime, they have the last word in the narrative of chapter 34. And this is significant, I think. It's important because it's telling us in some way that the narrator, si- narrator sides with the brothers over Jacob. It's complicated. Shechem's sin of forcing himself on, on Dinah is a terrible and disgraceful act, one that should never be. It's wrong, and it's heinous. And so, young men, young men need to be aware of the serious nature of such sin. It's a sin which can't be undone, and it always has consequences. So the challenge even for young men from this text is to to guard your purity and to view women as, as daughters of God, not as objects to fulfill selfish desires. Finally, Jacob. Jacob's vow to God still remains unfulfilled as he settled in Shechem. He should have gone straightway to Bethel. Instead, he settled in Shechem for a time. And with hindsight, we say if Jacob had just, if, if he had just gone to Bethel, perhaps none of this tragic debacle would have come upon his family. We have that perspective to read of Scripture, don't we? To look back on something and, and see it with hindsight, we can see so clearly then. Jacob's still demonstrating that he kind of has this old nature running through his blood. He's still looking out for number one. Instead of moral indignation over his daughter's vulnerable state, he's concerned with self-preservation. He's fearful. How will people treat him? What will people think of him? He, he says, the first words that come out of his mouth towards his son, Simeon and Levi, you have made me odious to the inhabitants of the land. Now if they gather against me, I'll be destroyed, both me and my household, right? Kohelet, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, he writes this in Ecclesiastes 5, 4, and 5. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. For it is better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. We see from Jacob that we should take these vows that we make before the Lord seriously. A lot of people have what I call jailhouse religion, Right? They get in a tight spot and then make these big vows, these grand vows before the Lord. God, if you just get me out of this spot, then I'll do this and this and this and then walk away from that and never even look back. But we should take God's word seriously. When we make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. It's better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. So here's what we see. We see the real obstacle. The only real obstacle to God's covenant fulfillment with his covenant people is the depravity of his covenant people. As we read through the the patriarchal narratives here, from Abraham until the end even of Genesis, we see that God works to perfect his people, to perfect their faith, even works to perfect our faith through adversities. And as Abraham failed in Egypt and Isaac in Gerar, so now Jacob has failed at Shechem. But in each of these cases, their monumental failures become stepping stones in their faith journey. So let's read together in chapter 35, beginning in verse 1 through verse 15. Follow along. God said to Jacob, Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods. That they had, and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the Terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And they journeyed, and as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is, to Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all his people who were with him. And there he built an altar, and called that place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel, so he called its name Alan bakuth Verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but it should be called or Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of that place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. As we look at chapter 35, we see this change, this transformation. We see this turning point. In Jacob's life. And so we see in the first scene this morning that Jacob is responding to God's call, verses 1 through 4. And in verse 1, as God so often graciously does, as God so often graciously does, God calls Jacob in the midst of his distress and in the midst of his fear. What's he fearing? He's fearing that all the inhabitants around him are going to come down on him and kill his family. God's promise has been with Jacob. He's always promised to be with Jacob. And so Jacob here, he just needs a nudge. He needs a reminder of what he's supposed to be about. And I I think this, too, is something that we often need, a reminder of what we are supposed to be about as kingdom citizens, as God's covenant people. And this is what God does as he comes to Jacob. And so Jacob calls all of his household to him. It's a family meeting, a meeting of the whole tribe, even those who have been plundered from Shechem. He calls the whole tribe. And what we see Jacob saying to them is that it's time to respond to God's call. And what we need to note is that responding to God's call demands full obedience. Responding to God's call requires repentance. It requires repentance. And we see that in verse 2. In verse 2, he instructs them to do what? Put Away the foreign gods among you and purify yourselves, right? Put it away. The word for put away, it means to turn away from. It it means to repent from. And in this context, it means to follow God, repent from this, and follow God. And so Jacob is calling his household to renounce, get this, renounce anything that hinders their worship of the one true God, the God at Bethel the one that they are moving to see. And he calls them to purify themselves by ridding from their life the foreign gods that they've been serving. And so in verse 4, it says they gave all of these foreign gods and the rings, the earrings that were in their ears, he, he, they gave them to Jacob and he buried them under the tree. You know, I, I think this parallels the Christian calling. When we, when we encounter God, we're made aware of our sinfulness before God's holiness. When we come to God and we, we enter His presence and we have this sense of God's overwhelming holiness, we can't help but to see and to feel the weight of our sinfulness. And the first thing that we must do in following God is repent of our sin. Much like burying the idols, so we too bury the old sinful man when we come to faith in Christ. We go through the waters of baptism and, and as we do, we celebrate and we signify how the old man has died and the old man has been put down and the new man has been resurrected to new life. We have this imagery through Scripture, through this ordinance that Jesus has left us to highlight and to signify and to, to underscore this great work of the gospel, this, this renewing, this life-giving work of the gospel. And so like Jacob... When God calls us to follow him, we must put away those things that hinder our pursuit of Christ. So let me ask you, Christian, is there anything in your life hindering your pursuit of Christ that you can think of this morning as you come to this place of worship? Are there things that you're holding on to, weighing you down and hindering your obedience to God? Are there things in your life that you are prioritizing over God? God. You know, we tend to think of all the bad things. Nope, there's no bad things in my life, right? But, but you know, the good things can also be bad things as well, right? Good things like hobbies can be prioritized over God and then become idols. Even family can be prioritized over God and become an idol. Children's activities, relationships, can be prioritized over God and become idols. So many other things that we could fill in the blank there. But if we prioritize anything over our relationship with God, then it sits in the place of an idol. And if this is the case, all of these things at least have the potential of taking priority over our relationship with God. So Christians, this is something we always have to keep in check. And if this is the case, then those who are, then those that are idols in your life, God is calling you to a place of repentance over. Now that doesn't mean that you put away your family, right? But that means that you prioritize God over the relationship with family. Let God be the centerpiece that directs the relationship. Let God be the centerpiece that directs all of these these tangential things in our life. So the answer is then found in prioritizing God first in all that we do. So here's what we see for Jacob. Responding to God's call requires repentance, a putting away of those things, that cloud, that get in the way of the relationship with God, so that the first thing is following God. The priority in life is pursuing God. And so responding to God's call not only requires repentance, but it also commends a new way of living. Continuing to look at verse 2, he tells them to do something else. What does he tell them to do? Change their clothes, right? Why in the world is he going to tell them to change their clothes? Reminds me of being a kid and mom saying, all right, now it's time to change your clothes. It's time to go to church. You've got to get dressed up for church, right? We... We see here he tells them to change their clothes. But here's the imagery. The imagery is similar to what Paul tells the Colossians in the New Testament. Having been speaking about the Christian's new identity in Christ, he tells them in Colossians 3.5, listen to this. You can follow along on the screen. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Right? Similar language. Put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that, look, you have put off taken off, you've put off the old self with its practices, and then you've also done something else, right? You've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. He goes on in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And then in verse 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Here's the Christian vocation, church. Here's the putting off of the old and the putting on of the new. Here's the being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So the command is clear, isn't it? Jacob's calling his people to put on new garments, signifying a new way of life, signifying purity, one that leaves behind the old. The sinful ways, one that buries the sinful ways of the past, one that's, that's pure and serves God alone. And so it is for the Christian. In our calling to follow Christ, we've put on this garment of righteousness, in a sense, to live a new and holy life. We've put on this garment of righteousness, one that, that orients us to living for God, to living for God's glory and not living for our own. And so in essence, Jacob is calling his tribe, his people, his family to live separate from the world as God's covenant people, to remain distinct from the people of the Canaanites as they go into the promised land. If they're to live in this land, they have to be distinct, which for them means putting away the false gods, They have to renounce their old ways, through repentance and through reclothing themselves with new garments. Friends, hear me out. This this is similar to the Christian vocation. The Christian vocation is concerned with being in the world, but not being of the world, right? This This is God's calling in every Christian's life. We do this, get this, we do this by rightly imaging God to the world, God's goodness is seen through your redeemed life, through my redeemed life, as we reflect his goodness throughout his creation, from the relationships that we have in work, at home, in the neighborhood, even to the way that we care for his creation as we steward the earth. And all of these ways we are imaging God to the world. And so as we prioritize living for God's glory, Jesus says we become salt and light. You see, we become salt and light to those around us, to those that we come in contact with. Because there's something otherworldly about the Christian. There's something divinely inspired within the Christian. There's a connection to God. There's a relationship with God For the Christian, this is how we respond to God's call. So in the second scene, chapter 5, verse 5 through 15, we see that there's a right way and a wrong way to worship God. A right way and a wrong way to worship God. So now, with Jacob's spiritual leadership restored, he leads his family and all those who are with him to Bethel in verse 5. And verse 5 tells us that God divinely induces panic on the cities that were around as they they passed and traveled on their way to Bethel. So when they arrive in verses 6 and 7, here's what Jacob does. He builds an altar to the Lord, and then God comes and meets with him there. You know, this must have been a tremendous moment of affirmation for Jacob and his pilgrimage. Coming out, of verse, coming out of chapter 34 in this, this dark time, and dark time in his leadership, dark time in the life of his family, right? And coming now into chapter 35 where he says, okay, we've put everything behind us, and now we're moving forward by God's grace. And he comes to the place where God has called him to. He responds in obedience and faithfulness. He gets there, and God meets him there when he builds the altar. And then God proceeds to reaffirm his covenant with Jacob, in the most extensive detail yet in verses 10 through 12. It's one of those watershed moments in his faith journey. It's one of those transformative moments. Once again, he tells him that his name is changed from Jacob to Israel. He identifies himself as God Almighty, El Shaddai. And then he, he gives him a command that points us back to the creation narrative. What's he tell him? He says, be fruitful and multiply. Right? This reminds us that God is consistent. God intends for the flourishing of humanity and he wants to bless the nations through Israel. This is the same even today through the church. The company of nations and kings he says will come from you. This is continuing to reiterate the covenant that God has made with Abraham and now carrying it out with Jacob. <clears throat> And he says, this land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I'm giving to you and to your offspring. God's, God's promise once, is, once again has been conveyed. This covenant has been kept intact and he has given it to his covenant people. And so Jacob responds by setting up a pillar, consecrating the space, worshiping God and, and naming it, again, naming it Bethel. And so we see here that there's a right way to worship. And the right way for Jacob to worship is to come to God on, in, in God's terms, right? Not to come to God on his own terms. Jacob tried that. He built the wrong altar in Shechem and tragically attempted to worship God in his own way, the way that seemed right to him. But you know what? It spelled disaster for his family. In reality... Jacob wasn't worshiping God at Shechem, was he? In reality, Jacob was worshiping the God of self. He was doing what he wanted to do, and he was pacifying his conscience by saying, well, I'm going to build an altar here at Shechem, and I'm going to worship God here. But that wasn't the deal. That wasn't what God was calling him to do. He was to return to Bethel. But then the reaffirmation of the covenant at Bethel, right, it it underscores the importance of worshiping God according to God's agenda and not according to our own. You know, this causes us to ask a similar question of ourselves, I think. Have I come to worship God today on my own agenda? I mean, like Jacob, do we seek to ease our consciences Going and pursuing the things that we want over what God wants? Metaphorically, are we constructing an an altar where we want, in a sense, instead of pursuing what God is calling us to? So that maybe worship attendance becomes nothing more than a way to check off the box of giving God time during the week. Do we have our priorities out of order here? Are we trying to worship God according to our own agenda or are we coming to God on his terms? And we see from Jacob's example that approaching God according to our own agenda never bodes well for us. And this passage reemphasizes the great theme of Genesis and and, and, and really the whole Bible. God is establishing and advancing his kingdom through his covenant people. And this is a story of the church. In fact, in Galatians 6.16, Paul says, the church, we the church, are the Israel of God. You know, God is about advancing his kingdom through his covenant people, through the church. That means through us. And that fits in line with our prayer focus today, right? God wants to advance his kingdom throughout North America. God wants to advance his kingdom throughout the world. And he uses the church to do it. He uses believers to do it. So the challenge for us this morning is threefold. One, one, spiritual leadership is paramount for the family. And as the father goes, so goes the family. Spiritual leadership is paramount in the family. In verses 16 through 29, the end of chapter 35, Jacob makes his way back to Hebron, the land of his father. He meets Esau there. They bury Isaac. Along the way, his wife, his favorite wife, Rebekah, dies in the birth of their last son, whom he names Benjamin. His firstborn son, Reuben, sleeps with his father's concubine, Bilhah. I mean, terrible things keep happening in the midst of Jacob's journey. But in all of this, we observe in the life of Jacob, he was faithful at times, but much of his life was characterized as unfaithful. But in the midst of it all, God has been faithful to him through everything. Jacob left home with nothing, but he returns with much. He left home as a deceiver, but here he returns as a spiritual leader, right? second thing we see, the second challenge this morning is that responding to God's call requires repentance and it commends a new way of living. This was true for Jacob and his, his entourage, his family, his tribe, but it's also true for the Christian. Responding to God's call looks like us coming to a point of repentance and confessing our sin before the Lord and commends to us a new way of living. Walking by the Holy Spirit, carrying out God's kingdom work, right? Exercising the Christian vocation that God has called us to, imaging Christ to the world. And then the third takeaway, the third challenge for us this morning is, if we're to offer true worship to God, we must come to God on His terms, not on our own terms. Well, how do we know what God's terms are? Well, we, we look to God's holy word, right? We look to God's holy word as He instructs us and as we read and we understand what God desires of us. This is coming to God on His agenda and not on our own. So let me ask this morning how is God calling you to respond today? How is God calling you to respond to Him today? Is He calling you to lay some things down, to repent over some things, to surrender your agenda to His agenda? Have you had one of these turning points in life where you've confessed your sin before the Lord, repented of your sin, and trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior? Have you had that turning point in your life? Maybe today is the day where that, the Lord is speaking to you and calling you to surrender your life to Him. Maybe for you... <coughs> This looks like some other thing that the Lord has placed on your heart, some other way of being bold in your faith. Whatever the case this morning, I want to challenge you to respond to the Lord as He is calling you. Repent of sin. Be commended to a new way of living, walking by the Holy Spirit. As God's covenant people, He's called us to walk with Him faithfully, to advance His kingdom, and to rightly image him to the world. That's what we are to be about, brothers and sisters. That's what the church is to be about. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we come before you this morning, we thank you for your goodness toward us. We thank you for the grace that you've given us in Christ our Savior. We thank you, Father, for your faithfulness, even even though we can look back over the course of our own life And see how we have been faithless. Lord, you have been so faithful. So strengthen us, God, as your people. Strengthen us, Lord, as your servants. Give us a holy hunger and desire to engage in the work that you've created beforehand that we should walk in them. God, give us a holy hunger and desire to be stewards of your grace toward others, to advance your kingdom for your namesake, for your glory. Oh God, give us a holy hunger and desire to rightly image you to the world. And Father, we'll be careful to give you all the praise and all the glory for all that you do in our lives. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand this morning?
1: Empty claims I've heard upon this earth speaks righteousness for me, stands in my defense, and Jesus, it's your blood. Your blood speaks a better word than all the empty claims heard upon this earth, it speaks righteousness for me, it stands in my defense, and Jesus it's your
2: blood, and what can wash away our sins, what can Jesus what can wash us through snow
1: Your cross testifies in grace, tells of the Father's heart to make a way for us. Now boldly we approach, not by earthly confidence, no, it's only by Your blood. Your cross testifies in grace tells of the father's heart to make
2: a way for us now boldly we approach not by earthly confidence no no it's only by your blood What can